so what we have as we are continuing in Genesis we've started looking at the story of Jacob who would later be called Israel and Jacob when he was born um, he received the name Jacob which means heel catcher because as his older brother was coming out of the womb uh, he grabbed his heel later on in their lives uh, Jacob had manipulated his brother out of his birthright and a couple of weeks ago when last we met we saw that what Jacob did uh, was that he deceived his father Isaac Isaac had intended to give the blessing to Esau and told Esau to go out and kill some game and make him some stew and um, and Isaac's wife Rebecca caught wind of this and well and she had Jacob dress up and pretend to be his brother thus receiving the blessing and so what we talked about when last we met was that Jacob had deceived his father now here you had Isaac was trying to go against God's will by blessing Esau and Rebecca was trying to help God and we really don't need to do either we don't need to do either um, we don't need to help God he certainly doesn't need our help and, um, and we don't we definitely don't want to go against God and so now what has happened is is that they have sent Jacob away and when last we studied it said in Genesis 28 verse 2 um, his father said arise and go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel your mother's father and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban your mother's brother and so he's being sent away what's only supposed to be for a short season what we'll see is that it ends up being 20 years because of the deception and because Esau wanted to kill him um, and the way that the whole thing has come about the sadness of this is that Jacob will never see his mother again not only will he never see his mother again he'll be gone from his home and his family for 20 years there are bad feelings now between he and Esau bad feelings between uh, Rebecca and Esau definitely and so now tonight we're going to pick up and Jacob is about to start a new chapter in his life. Verse 10 tonight of chapter 28 where it says, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold a ladder was set up on earth and its top reached to heaven and there the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending on it and we're gonna stop right there for a second now Jacob is going forward he's moving forward to the next chapter in his life and sometimes when we move on to the next chapter things are going to be uncomfortable and he finds himself in a place where now uh, his pillow for this night is going to be a stone and so obviously a place of discomfort you know one of the things that Jesus said it's Matthew chapter 8 verse 20 he said foxes have holes birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to hang his head we shouldn't necessarily think 
that because we're proceeding in God's will, we're going forward, we're starting another chapter, that things are always going to be comfortable, more likely than not, uh, we go into the unknown because that's where we have the uh, best opportunity to see Jesus. But as he comes here, what happens is, as he goes to this place to sleep, it says that he dreamed, verse 12, behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. So the ladder extends from earth to heaven, not from heaven to earth, but from earth to heaven. And this is very significant because what it says is that the angels of God were ascending and they were descending on it. Now, when we take a look at this, uh, it's pretty simple to take a look at this and understand that if the ladder is going from, well, earth to heaven, that no man can reach heaven. No man in and of our own efforts is able to get to heaven, and that's why uh, this thing called religion is created. It's been well said that religion is man's attempt to reach God. What makes Christianity different is Christianity acknowledges that man could never reach God. A limitless, perfect, holy, eternal God, uh, man can't reach. And so what we understand is that God reached down to us and gave us Jesus who became the latter. And this is said in John chapter 1. Turn there with me, if you will, just for a moment. It's John chapter 1. And this is, as Jesus is picking his disciples, it says here in verse 43, it says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him on, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, and this is where we get the key to unlocking our passage tonight, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so Jacob is given somewhat a vision of this back in Genesis 28 when it says that he dreamt and behold a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Who is the ladder? The Son of Man is the ladder. John 14 verse 6, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father but by me. So, religion is man's attempt to reach God. Christianity says we couldn't do this. And so here we have a beautiful picture of the Son of Man, the bridge 
between earth and heaven. Verse 13, it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham and the father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And we can stop right there. Up until this point, it's one thing for Jacob to have received the blessing from his earthly father. It's another thing to have it revealed by God. And God now comes to him and says, listen, this is about to get personal between you and I. But her, before you received the blessing from your dad, but now this is going to be personal. I am the Lord God of Abraham and the father and the God of Isaac. But now I also want to reveal that you are the one that the blessings are going to be passed on down to. And he says, on which you lie on this land, I will give you to your descendants. And here again, the promise that had been made to Abraham and had been made to Isaac is made to Jacob. It's one thing for someone to tell you about the promises of God. It's another thing for you to open up the book yourself and to be able to seek for yourself and search for yourself the riches of God's word and the treasury of his person and promises is revealed in such. Devotionals are a great thing. Would never knock them. But what you're gleaning when you open up a devotional book, what you're getting is you're getting the fruit of somebody else's meditation and what God has revealed to them. But it's an amazing thing when somebody opens up the Word of God, and if you don't know how to do it, simply start by asking three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? What does it say? That's our observation. These are the facts as we read the Word. What does it mean? Well, now that gets into interpretation. And then, what does it mean to me? Why did God put this in his book and how does it apply to my life here today? And so what we would read, so if we were looking at something like what we're reading tonight, all right, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? It means that God had revealed himself to Jacob in a way that was real and personal. And what does it mean to me is that he can do the same thing to me because this is how he speaks to me when I open up his word. And he can speak to you the same way. See, he doesn't say, give us this uh, week, our weekly bread, so go to church on Sunday and get your bread and then come back next week. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because he is a loving heavenly father that desires a relationship with you, but with you. Yes, he desires it with your pastor, he desires it with your teachers, but he desires it with you. And this should be something that is so special and so overwhelming to you that every time you open up the book, it should be like, okay, God, where are we going today? What are you going to show me today? What are you going to reveal to me today? Oh, I can't wait to have this experience with you. And so the promise now is made personal. And what we're seeing is this. Everything in God's Word is playing out exactly as He had promised. 
What does this mean to us? What is the application? That if God is making good on his promises every step of the way, he's going to make good on everything that he promised. That's our future, our hope. So when you don't know what's coming next, do the things that you know to do now. And so God reveals himself, reiterates the promise. Verse 15, he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to do. Until I'm done, I'm not, I'm not going to leave you until I'm done with what I'm going to do in your life. I think there's a lot of application there, folks. Verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. It's an amazing thing for a man to find God's, you know, to experience God's presence. But here's the thing, and we know this from Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. And just like all Scripture is God-breathed, this God that has given us this Scripture, this same God, He's present everywhere. Everywhere. To the height of heaven or the depths of hell, our God is what we call omnipresent. But it just so happens that the experience that Jacob is having with him right now, I know that God is here and I'm sensing him and I'm feeling him in a way that I've never felt him before. Surely I've stumbled onto something that's amazing and God is in this place and I have found uh, something like the fountain of youth. This is something wonderful that he's found here. This is the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Well, listen, from what we understand in Scripture is that when a man or a woman repents of their sins and Christ, through His Holy Spirit, is living in you, wherever you go, you open up His Word, you, submit, you go to Him ready to submit and to learn and to understand, He's going to speak to you. And just walking around your neighborhood with an open Bible can be that moment where you're, where you're walking around saying, man, I feel God's presence. In your backyard, on your front porch, on your break from work out in your car, at the beach. We have His Word. We have His Spirit inside of us. See, that God has come up with a way to communicate who He is and what He desires of us wherever you are as long as your heart is genuinely seeking Him. But for Jacob, this moment and this place is so incredibly special. Verse 18 says, Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city had been loosed previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat, and clothing to put on, so that I came back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Let's stop right there for a second. You remember that stone that was so uncomfortable that was beneath his head? Well now, because of his experience, that stone has become a pillar and almost like an altar that he sets up and he pours oil on top of it and he anoints it. 
And this is the expression out of the fullness of the revelation of God that has happened of his heart. Oh, what he does is he sets up this altar and he, he names that place Bethel, which means house of God. Now this is significant because Bethel, this is the place where he had his encounter with God. And we see in Scripture that these men, like Abraham, they build altars, and when they're struggling, they go back to their Bethel. That's where they last heard from God. It's so important for us to go to a place where we're hearing from God, where we know when we're sitting in this place. For me, uh, it had happened when I was sitting in uh, a large Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale. And there were thousands of people in the room, but every time I went there, I felt as if God was speaking directly to me. But listen when we went to a Calvary in Johnson City, when I went there and I just heard the word opened up and taught, I felt the same way. In the storefront of 20 people when we went there several years ago. And the bottom line is this, it's like, where are you hearing from God? I mean, again, you can hear from anytime, anywhere, but sometimes he gives you those special places where it's like you just go there with an open Bible and an open heart. And Jacob has this experience and he goes to Bethel. And so he builds this altar just like his grandpa did. Grandpa Abraham had built an altar and he's having the same experience. But now what we also see is this, is that he made a vow here. All right. And so to an extent, Jacob is uh, beginning his relationship with God, but he's still of a limited understanding because what we still see is Jacob, part of who he is, he is a deceiver. He's a bargainer. He's somebody that makes these bargains and these deals and he's willing and dealing and he says, Jacob made a vow saying, oh, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going, give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone that I've set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, listen, God, if, if you do this, and if you do this, and you do this, then I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And what we see is a kind of a bargain. And you see something very distinct in what God says to Jacob versus what Jacob says to God. And we have to pay attention to it. I have written here, it says, unfortunately, there was a great contrast between God's promise and Jacob's vow. One was totally God-centered, the other was terribly man-centered. Listen, God's promise to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13-15, which we just read, God said, I am the Lord. I will give to you. I am with you. I will not leave you till I've done what I've spoken. All God-centered. God's promise. Not conditional. Jacob's vow to God. Completely conditional. Okay, if you'll be with me, and you keep me, in this way that I am going, and you give me bread and clothing, so that I come back to my father's house. Do you see, do you see the difference? One is totally God-centered, and the other is totally me-centered. And I would ask you, as you're praying and you're having your conversations with God, are they God-centered or me-centered? Here's how you can tell. Are you asking for things that you know please God and that are honoring to God? So when I'm praying for myself or for someone else, Am I praying that that person becomes more dependent? Or am I just praying for relief for them? Am I praying that they uh, are delivered from the very circumstance that God wants to use to cultivate the character of His Son in them? See the difference? And there is a difference. One is very, very 
God-centered. One is me-centered. How much better if Jacob had prayed like this? Oh, because you promised to be with me and to keep me and provide for all my needs and to bring me back to the land which you swore to give to my fathers and to me, I will be completely yours, God. How different would something like that be? Oh, Lord, you said all these things and now I'm just humbly just coming to you. And this is how it should be for the Christian. When you realize what God did through sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross, our response shouldn't be, well, Lord, if you do this, if you get me this job, if you give me the promotion, I'm going to give you 10%. No! It should be more like this. Because you sent your son to die on a cross to save my soul from hell, I'm yours every step of the way. My money is yours. My time is yours. My talents, whatever they are, are yours. And again, now it's all about him. But God again, was gracious with Jacob. He could have heard Jacob's vow and said, you know what, you're just not getting the whole spiritual component of this. I'm going to call it all off. But instead, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and now the God of Jacob. And so this is Jacob's God experience. Chapter 29. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Then he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone away from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Now, I want you to look back at verse 1 for a second of chapter 29 where it says Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. When it says that Jacob went on his journey, the literal translation in the original language, it said, when Jacob lifted up his feet on his journey, after his encounter with God, his countenance changed. And basically, what the original language insinuates is he had happy feet. He had pep in his step, and he was ready to go, and he was ready to move forward now that he had had this God experience. And here he comes to this well, and according to the custom, when the flocks would come, well, when all the flocks were there so that things would be done equitably, several people would move the stone away, and they would open it up so that they could feed their flocks. Now, as he does this, verse 4 says, um, as they're there and they're waiting for everyone to arrive, it says, Jacob said to them, my brethren, verse 4, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. Then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him well. So he said to him, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. This is one of the great love stories of the Bible. Verse 7 says, Then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go feed them. Basically, what Jacob is saying in a nutshell is, Listen, I see her far off, and uh, you guys need to get lost. So feed your sheep and pack sand and get going. All right? <laughs> but they reply in verse 8, and they say, But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone away from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. 
Verse 9 says, Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone away from the well's mouth. Now this was normally a job that would take a couple of people, um, but this is that moment where Jacob is kind of rolling up his sleeve and flexing on him. And so he rolls the stone away single-handedly from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. All of a sudden, you see Jacob, you remember, he was kind of like mama's boy. This is Rebecca's boy. And now what we see is that when Rachel comes along, he's like mighty man. And he rolls the stone away. And, uh, and after he does that, verse 11, this is awesome. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative, so that he was Rebecca's son. So she ran and told her father. Now, I, I don't know. You can't possibly think of what Rachel was thinking during this scene. So he lifted up his voice, he kissed her, lifted up his voice, and he started crying. And probably what Rachel's thinking is, wow, this is, this is kind of odd. This is unstable. It's not normally that you see someone, and, and he kissed me right off the bat, and now he just starts crying. And, uh, and then he identifies himself, so she runs and tells her father. Verse 13 says, Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. And what we're gonna see is that he actually stays with him for a very, very long time. And what we're gonna see in this relationship between Jacob and Laban is that this is really a match made in heaven. There are a lot of things that Jacob is going to learn about himself by dealing with Laban. And maybe you'll find this in your own life, in your own walk with Jesus, that so often the people that you struggle with the most are the people that are sometimes the ones that are most like us. And we ask, well, why did God put this person in my presence? Why did he put them there? Well, so often, it's, uh, he holds a mirror up to ourself by the conflict that he reveals to us and others. And we're going to somewhat see that in Jacob's relationship with Laban. Because just as Jacob had a few surprises for his father and his brother, well, Laban's got a few surprises in store with Jacob. Let's read on. It's verse 15. It says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Okay, Laban seems very generous here. Now Laban had two daughters, and the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now when we read that, that Leah's eyes were delicate, there's a lot of debate from scholars over the years as to what, this, what these delicate eyes meant. But were we come to a greater understanding is simply by the contrast that's made between her and Rachel. So Leah's eyes were delicate. She probably wasn't much to look at. Um, but Rachel was beautiful in contrast and form and appearance. And this was Jacob's love. 
And so now verse 18 says, now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Okay, let's just stop right there and sit on that for a second. He's saying, I'm going to serve you seven years for your daughter. In today's society of cell phones and fast food and, and internet, we don't like to wait more than seven minutes for something. In Amazon Prime, we want to order it. We want what we want here as soon as possible. We don't like to wait for anything. And I would ask you, ladies, right now, if you're dating someone, um, would that person be willing to wait seven years for you? Would that person be willing to wait seven years for you? Because that's what we see here. In trying to date my wife, I say trying to date my wife because while I, for me it was love at first sight, well, for Tiffany, not so much. And for so many months, I sat there and I was just trying to say, well, are we making any headway at all? Is she ever going to date me? And I was willing to wait seven years though. When we see God unveiling his plan with so many of these Bible characters, we'll see later Joseph, who had this dream as a 17-year-old. It's after almost two decades that that dream is realized. Moses was 40 years old when he went into the wilderness, when he went to the desert, and only at the age of 80 was he beckoned by the burning bush. So many of these characters. Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was 30 years old. But he says, Seven years I'll serve for your daughter. Seven years. Ladies, find a guy that loves you like that, that would be willing. I'm not saying you should make him wait seven years, but find somebody that you know would be willing to. Verse 19, and Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. This was nothing for him. There was such a deep love that Jacob had for Rachel. Seven years, it says, went by like that. Verse 21, but before we go there, and we see the kind of love that he had for her. You know, again, it says because of the love he had for her. There are a few things that we realize about love versus lust. And this would be good for us to remember. And the first thing is this, is that love waits and lust won't. Love gives, lust takes. Love is patient, Lust is pressure. Lust says now, love says now. These are just a few good things to remember. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And 
He said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Stop right there. Like we said, Jacob had met his match. He who had deceived his own father has now been deceived by his father-in-law. And whatever the custom was, whatever this looked like, he did not know until the next morning that he woke, woke, that he, that he woke up and Leah was sitting there like, Hi. Hi. Can you imagine? Oh, the, the nerve. They deceived me. And again, I just wonder if it came to his mind at all what he had done to his own father and to his brother. And we see here that Laban doesn't apologize for this. Verse 26 says, Laban said, it, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. So first, Laban seemed, oh, so very generous. Oh, it's not right, Jacob, because you're my relative that you should serve me for nothing. But this is a major deception. You served seven years. Here's Leah. Fulfill your service to her for one week, and I'll give you Rachel also, but you'll have to serve me another seven years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Stop right there for a second. As we take a look at this, what you're going to see here is the groundwork between the daughters and their maidservants laying ground for the birth of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, it's very interesting in God's Word that when we take a look at 12 sons, um, when we take a look at the 12 sons, Ishmael had actually been promised 12 sons. God told Abraham, listen, I'm going to give your son Ishmael, I'm going to make him into a great nation uh, in chapter 17, and I'm going to give him 12 princes. But that same promise with the 12 tribes is never made specifically to Isaac nor his descendants. It's just told that through Isaac and descendants, they're going to be a great people with a great many descendants. But what we see here is that the 12 tribes of Israel will far outshine the 12 tribes of Ishmael and that, as it turns out, are part of God's great redemptive plan. And so the groundwork is laid by bringing in um, Leah and her maidservant and Rachel and her maidservant and what we're going to see right now is how this begins to play out. And again, what you'll see is that the 12 children of Israel don't necessarily come about in this incredibly godly fashion. It's actually a mess and it's chaotic. And what it reminds us is this, when we see Jacob's behavior and how the 12 sins come about, what we see is God's grace. God's grace and God's sovereignty. And that's the only thing that can really explain it. Because now here's Jacob with two wives. Now, the Bible says this. It recognizes polygamy in the Bible. It's recognized, but it's not ratified and it's not condoned. All right, it recognizes the sinfulness of human behavior.
It recognizes the sin nature, but it in no way condones polygamy. From the beginning, it said, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, not wives. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, not your wives. And what we will see here is that because marriage is going outside of God's design, we're going to see some strife here. And we're going to get into the birth of the 12 children of Israel, and we're going to do that next week uh, because I think that we are actually running out of time tonight, and I don't want to gloss over this. Because again, how the 12 children of Israel come about, you're going to see there's nothing necessarily godly about it except for the fact that God is sovereign and not blessing man's sin. But the way that he's ordained things to come to pass is that all things will indeed work together for good to those that love God. So we're going to pray right now. We're going to take some questions. Um, Father in heaven, we just love you and we are so thankful uh, for the ability to dive into your word each Sunday night and um, to see Jesus indeed everywhere and to see your characteristics, your grace and your mercy. And so thank you for showing us tonight that there's a ladder that extends from earth to heaven. That the God of heaven became a man And walked this earth was tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin and loved us enough to go to a cross so that we could have relationship with you building that bridge between earth and heaven between heaven and earth thank you Lord Jesus Amen Amen. Mm -hmm.